Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We are in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, I wasn't here last week. Uh, Pastor Dirk was here, and he shared with you guys if you were here. Um, and uh, But the week before, um, I was in uh, 1 Peter, and it was more, more or less an introduction. And we did the first 12 verses. But to just dive into the 13, the second half of that chapter... You know, if you if you didn't read the first half, it may you know it's because it starts out with a therefore, and so it's like okay, well, what's therefore therefore? And so what we want to do is kind of go back, and so what I'm going to do is go back, and we're going to just read through those first twelve verses and kind of recap it. So beginning with verse one of chapter one, First Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus. Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. And then verse 13, where we, where we left off, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, through, uh, for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, uh, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower, uh, the grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you, and so here in this. This letter that Peter is writing, he's writing to Christians who were scattered throughout the provinces of what is known as, in those days, Asia Minor, which was most likely, or excuse me, mostly modern-day Turkey. And in the beginning of the letter, he calls them pilgrims. Uh, Pilgrims, which are, you know, if you're a pilgrim, you're basically a citizen of a different country, and you're traveling through a strange land. And, uh, you know, so these people, they are citizens of a different kingdom, uh, the kingdom of heaven, and they're passing through. They're dwelling in a foreign land. You know, if you're a pilgrim traveling through a different land, the people around you, they have different speech. Uh, they probably have a different culture. Uh, they have a different way of doing, uh, doing things and, and just a way of thinking. And uh, for you and I as believers, of course, we're pilgrims passing through this life. And, and the world has a different culture than us. The world has a different way of thinking, a different, the different purposes. They have a different speech. These pilgrims that Peter is writing to, pretty soon they're going to go under some very intense persecution and suffering under Emperor Nero. It would occur shortly after Peter wrote this letter. And so Peter here is writing to encourage them to live as pilgrims, and then he's instructing them, how do you live as pilgrims? And so in the first half of chapter 1 here that we read, he encourages them. First of all, God the Father has begotten them to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, our hope is not wishful thinking. Uh, We don't have a belief system. Christianity is not a belief system. It's a living hope based on a risen Savior, Jesus Christ who rose again from the dead. And these believers, Peter's reminding them, they have an inheritance reserved in heaven awaiting for them. So when you know that you have a, a reservation waiting for you, man, doesn't it make the journey easy? It's like, you know what? I don't care where I go. I, I, just, I can just take my time. You know, I know my end, where I'm going to go, I've got a place reserved. You know, when you're traveling, sometimes it's, it's comforting to know, you know, if I get to this place, they'll, they'll have a bed waiting for me. I don't have to like, I wonder where I'm going to sleep tonight type of a thing. And so for you and I, as we're traveling through this life, you know, we have things that stress us out. I, I get stressed out. You know, we have things that happen in our lives. But you know what? We have a, a, an inheritance waiting for us. What a relief. You know, then you, it's like, you know, okay, I don't care how my life meanders because I know the end result. And that's eternal life with Jesus Christ. And they're kept for salvation by the power of God. In other words, their salvation is not based on their performance. For me, that's a real relief. 
My salvation is not perform is not based on how well I do as a Christian. It's not on my ability to just hang in there and hold on until Jesus Christ comes again. It's based on the power of God. It's not based on me. What a relief that is. Um, you know, the power of Christ's blood, of course, to wash us from our sin. The strength of His Word, you know, His promises, they're, they're strong. They're good. They're, they're, they're trustworthy. And the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to, to transform our lives as we're going through this life. Then in verse 6 here, Peter tells them that in the meantime, before they receive their inher- in eternal inheritance, they may have to go through various trials. But he tells them, man, even in those trials, there's a reason to rejoice. Why? Well, because just as precious metals are purified and refined, so the trials that they're going to go on go through, the trials that you and I are going to go through, they are meant to purify and refine our faith. God's using those trials in our lives. You know, so, so often we try to run away from trials. You know, I, I, I don't like difficulties in my life. I don't like challenges. I don't like getting, you know, something happens that just out of the blue. It's like, how did that happen? So we don't like those things. But you know what? We should, as believers, really rejoice in them because God is using them in our lives to make us more like Him and to increase our faith in Him. And so we can be joyful even in trials, knowing that the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. And there, at the, towards uh, verse 12 there in the end, he talks about that salvation. The salvation through Jesus Christ has been revealed to you and I. He says, you know, the prophets of old, man, they searched the Scriptures diligently. They would get a prophecy, and then they would just like, wow, oh, man, I, I, I need to know more. And they would dig into those Scriptures that they had, trying to understand, trying to figure out what's the Spirit saying here, you know. And, and so they were digging in, trying to understand it. And then Peter says, man, even angels long to look into the things, the mystery of the grace of God in you and I. Even angels are just, they're just amazed. And they're just like, man, we got to understand this better. And so we get to the therefore. That's the introduction, actually. Therefore, verse 13. Therefore, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that doesn't sound very, uh, it's like, gird up the loins. What in the world is he talking about? Well, the clothing of that culture, it was loose-fitting long robes. And if you've ever been in a long robe or loose-fitting clothing, you know that you know it's kind of difficult to work in that kind of clothing. Um, and so, in preparation to do work, you would gird up your clothes. You'd pull up the long, you know, tie them up or whatever. It's equivalent, basically, to in our culture where you say, "I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get to work." It's it's basically the same kind of concept here. And so, what Peter is saying here is in light of the fact that the prophets were occupied with, they diligently studied the Scriptures in order to understand the Gospel, and even the angels longed to understand the mystery of God's grace to us. He says, we are to gird up the loins of our mind. We're to apply our minds to understanding God's Word. We're to dig into God's Word. I mean, the prophets were doing it. How much more should we do it? In fact, Paul in Ephesians 5.17 says, tells us to understand the will of the Lord. We're commanded to understand the will of the Lord. In Romans 15.4, he says, Paul also writes, he says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scripture might have hope. Those things, we're to study the Scriptures. We're to learn 
We're to understand God's will. Paul writes to a young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he tells Timothy, Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that doesn't just apply to pastors and apply to Timothy. It applies to all of us. Man, we're to dig into God's word. We're to understand God's will for us. And so if the prophets searched the Scriptures diligently, so we should be students of the Word, applying our minds to understand the will of the Lord, uh, the will of the Lord through His Word. And then he says, be sober. Now, of course, literally, as Paul writes in another, in another letter, we're not to be drunk with wine, we're in his dissipation. But it's not just literally, it's also spiritually. You know, we're not to let our minds become intoxicated with sin and the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because it is intoxicating. The things of this world can intoxicate us. And it can cause us, we can be drunk with the things of this world. Peter is going to mention being sober-minded two more times in this letter. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And if you and I as believers, if we're not careful, we can become intoxicated with the cares of this world, with the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things, other than things of the kingdom. It's, 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 it's subtle, and it's deceptive. And just like, you know, if you've ever drank and you ended up drinking too much, you know, it kind of sneaks up on you sometimes. And, you know, you take a little bit of this and a little, you know, pretty soon it's like, oh, all of a sudden it's like, well, I'm dizzy. And you're drunk. And, and it's the way with the things of the world. We can get kind of oh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But before long, we're, we're no longer sober. And then he tells them, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace has to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, read that and you go, wait a minute. What about God's grace to save me? We're talking about grace at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But you see, God's grace was not just for our past when he saved us. You know, grace is unmerited unmerited favor. And, you know, we didn't earn our salvation. It's God's grace. It's his unmerited favor towards us that saved us. But... That's not the end of God's grace. God's grace is also for our present, for right now. You and I need grace right now. We need God to continue to extend His unmerited favor to us day to day. Remember when Paul was praying? You know, and he had that thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, but whatever it was, Paul says, I prayed three times asking the Lord to take it away from me. And God didn't take it away. But God's answer to Paul was, hey, my grace is sufficient for you. That is grace for the present. And we need grace for the present. But it's not just the past. It's not just the present. There's going to be more of God's grace revealed to us in the future as well. And Paul even writes about that in 1 Corinthians 2.9. He says, But as, as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. I mean, when I think of God's grace, it just overwhelms me. God's grace is amazing. 
Chuck Smith wrote a book, you know, Grace Changes Everything. And it really does change everything in our lives. We can love one another because of God's grace, because God loved us. We don't deserve God's love, but we can love other, you know, so it's, we just understand that God just loves us. And so we can love one another. They may not deserve our love, but because God loved us, we can love them. You know, that grace has an impact on our lives, but there's more grace to be revealed to us when Jesus Christ returns. And then in verse 14, Paul says, And so, as obedient children, we are to obey His commands, we're to submit to His will, and we're to place our complete confidence in our Heavenly Father. When I think of putting your complete confidence in God, you know, resting your hope in, in Him and, and trusting in Him, I think of like a, you know, a little child up in a tree and the father is standing below and, and says, you know, jump, jump, I'm going to catch you. And that little child just looks at his father's loving eyes and just jumps. You know, you just, you just know your dad's going to pick you. Your dad's going to catch you. And, uh, you know, some of you, maybe you had a father that was untrustworthy. Maybe you had a father that let you down. And that, I know that that happens because, uh, you know, fathers are, are humans. They're sinners. And maybe you had a father that was not trustworthy, a father that you couldn't put your confidence in. But if that's the case, understand this. God is not that way. Our Heavenly Father, you can place your trust in Him. And if you had a father that was trustworthy. My dad was trustworthy. He was faithful. If you had a father that was trustworthy and faithful, man, thank God this morning for him. Rejoice in that. And then he says, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. You know, you and I as believers were to have a model or an example to pattern our lives after. And we're not to be conformed to the pattern or the old pattern of our old lives. Uh, you know, before you and I were Christians, before we surrendered our lives to the Lord. Today, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm hoping we are to be different from what we were before Christ was in our lives. There should be a difference in our lives. You know, we're to be governed by new laws. We're to have new goals in this life that we aim at. And we're to be abide by new principles. And so Peter says here, you know, rather than being conformed to the old patterns of this Christian of this world before we were Christians, in verse 15 he says, "But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy." We're to have a pattern and an example to model our lives after, and that pattern and that example is God our heavenly Father because he is holy. Now, if you had an earthly father who set a good example, who was a good role model, a good pattern for you to follow, man, rejoice in that this morning. You know, and, and you know, if you've never said that to your dad, if you've, you know, I, I, there was a time my dad's in, you know, with the Lord now. He passed away a number of years ago now. But I remember there was a time, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, where I just thought, you know, I've never, I never really told my dad how much I appreciated him, how much I loved him. My dad was from that generation where, you know, they don't hug, you know, the, the kind where if, if he gave you a hug, it'd be like a, hey, you know, that kind of a thing. Or, you know, he just wasn't really emotional in that, resp- in that respect. He loved the grandkids, though. He was just loved hugging, kissing grandkids. Um, but there was a time where I thought, you know, I just need to tell him. I really need, he needs to know 
how much of an impact he's had on my life. And so I called him, or I, I don't know if I called him, I wrote him a letter or whatever, but I, I, I communicated that to my father. Maybe this morning, that's something you need to do with your father, if your father's still alive, and you know, maybe, you just, maybe you've never said anything to him. Let me encourage you to do that. It'll bless him, I guarantee it. So, some of you may have not had an earthly father who did set a good example. Maybe you had an earthly father who set a bad example, and that that happens, unfortunately. But understand this. You have a heavenly father that you can pattern your life after who is good, who is trustworthy, who is holy. And we're called to be holy just as he is holy. Now, that word holy, right away you think of, you know, blameless and pure. And that is true. That's what holy means. But it also speaks of being set apart. So rather than conforming to the lusts of this world, we're to be set apart in, notice, all our conduct. All our conduct. We're to be like our Heavenly Father who is set apart, who is holy. It's easy to maybe set yourself apart in certain places in your life and let others slide, but the Bible says in all of our conduct, we're to be holy because our Father is holy. Verse 17, he says, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, when I was reading that, you know, I can't help but reflect on my Father. And my father was not a cruel person. He was uh, second. He was uh, the second oldest of seventeen kids, all from same parent. Same, you know, wasn't like a mixed family or anything. He, there was uh, two or three sets of twins. My dad was a twin. His twin sister died when when they were when she was three. But um, my grandfather was very very harsh. And uh, my dad told me, you know how my dad learned how to tell time. My grandfather set him in front of a clock and said, okay, here's the big hand. The big hand's for the hours, the small hand's for the minutes. So you see the big hand's here. That means four. Up to, so it's four o'clock. And that was the lesson. And he says, okay, what time? And then he would change it. He said, what time is it? And, of course, you know, it's like trying to understand. Whap him upside the head. No, that's not the right time. That's how we learned how to tell time. But, you know, you get knocked around enough times, you'll, you'll try to, you'll really learn. You'll get diligent trying to figure it out, you know. My grandfather was cruel. He was a blacksmith. He was a tough guy. Um, but my father wasn't cruel. And, you know, I think he had been beaten so much as a kid that he just said, I'm not going to do that with my kids. And uh, so it had an impact on him. Um, so my father, he wasn't cruel. He was not unreasonable. Um, he didn't play favorites between kids. You know, sometimes parents do that. Um, but he wasn't a pushover either. Um, I had a healthy respect for my father basically all throughout my life. Even at a time when I was rebellious as a teenager, I still respected my dad. You know, I still honor, you know, I tried, well, I didn't honor him during that time, but I respected him. And I had a healthy fear of him. And, you know, growing up in his house, if I, I knew if I disobeyed my father, there's going to be a consequence. Whatever it was, there was going to be a consequence to pay. And Peter here, he's exhorting the believers who are soon going to enter into a time of intense persecution, don't fall back into your old pattern of living before Christ. Sometimes it's such a temptation when things get tough to kind of fall back to old ways, to kind of revert back to you know, how you used to be in your old life. But he says, conduct yourselves, and that means to pass the time of your stay here on earth in fear. 
Now, what he's not saying is not in fear of God himself. You know, that like God's going to, any moment, he's just going to, you know, come off and, and whack you upside the head or something. Maybe you grew up in a house like that. Maybe your father was abusive and you, you know, you didn't know from one day to the next if, if something you did was going to trigger a, a harsh response. He was just going to beat you or something. You know, I know that people have experienced that in their, in their lives. That's not what Peter is talking about, and that's not what our Heavenly Father is talking about. But we're to fear the repercussions of our sin because God will judge us according to our conduct. And so, and God's not partial, He's impartial. And so we're to fear the repercussions of our sin. Verse 18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know, if you are ever tempted to revert back to your old carnal ways that you lived in before you surrendered your life to the Lord, remember this. And I think Peter's communicating this to the people too. Remember that you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. When you and I sin, blood has to be shed for the sin. Innocent blood has to be shed for sin. And the next time you feel tempted to give in to the lusts of your flesh, think about the cross and what Christ did for you by dying in your place to pay the price for your sin. You are redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb. Verse 20, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Do you understand this concept? It's, it, it's, it's hard to wrap your brain around this, but when God created the universe and when He created man, He gave man the free choice to disobey or obey Him. He gave God that ability. Here in the Garden of Eden, He says, you know, He placed that one tree. He says, you can eat of all the other fruit of the trees, but the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you, you shouldn't eat of it, or you won't eat, shall not eat of it, because in the day that you do, you'll die. So man in the Garden of Eden had a choice. Do I obey God? Do I surrender my life to God? Or do I rebel and do what I want to do? And you know the story. We all know the story. Man chose to disobey God. But this here's the thing that I have always just a hard time comprehending. The Bible teaches that God is omniscient. It's just a fancy word for basically meaning that God's all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows you intimately. He knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows everything. And he knew all along that man would choose to rebel against him, and yet he still went through with creating us. And even before time began, he had a plan to send his son to die for our sins. That just that just amazes me because think about it. Put it in put it in your own life, your, your a context that maybe you can understand. How many of you would marry a spouse, a husband or a wife, knowing that they are going to betray you down the road? They're going to betray you, and they're going to have an adulterous affair with someone else. If you knew that ahead of time, would you go, man? I love this person. I just man, I want to live my life. I want to grow old with this. Would you do it? Probably not. If you knew. God knew that we would rebel against Him, that we would betray Him, that we would turn our hearts away from Him. 
And yet he still put a plan in place to send his son to woo us back to him. To love. I mean, we sing that one song, Oh, the great love of God. That's God's love for us. Amazing. In verse 21, he says, Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. You know, once you and I are put our trust in Christ for our salvation, we become members of the family of God. Not only do we have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, now that relationship is restored, but now all of a sudden we've got brothers and sisters. We've got others in the family of God that likewise have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. We have brothers and sisters. We're, we're members of a family now. And Paul here, in verse 6, back in verse 6, remember he said, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Various trials. It means, you know, different kinds of trials. Who decides if you, me, you, who decides if you need to go through a trial? It's your Heavenly Father, right, that decides if you need to go through a trial. And who decides what type of trial you need to go through and for how long? Well, the answer is your Heavenly Father. And we have various trials. I'm going through trials right now that you're not going through. You're probably going through trials that I haven't gone through or won't go through. We all have been going. We all go through trials. And what Peter says here in verse 17 there, you know, he says, You have an impartial Father, Heavenly Father, who judges according to each man's work. And so what Peter is warning the believers, there's a time coming. You're going to endure various trials, differing trials at different times. And this is what he's trying to communicate, I believe. Don't start looking around at your brothers and sisters and start wondering why you are not enduring or that why they are not going through the same trials you're going through. Because that's the easy thing. You know, we get into a trial, we get into a difficult, and it's very easy to go, wonder why I'm going through this and why they're not. They don't seem to be any more spiritual than me. In fact, they seem less spiritual, and yet... I'm the one going through this. Why? And what happens is we can start becoming envious of others. We can become resentful of others. We can even become, if we allow it to fester, we can become hateful of others. And the thing is, eventually that resentment, that anger, and that hate will be turned towards our Heavenly Father. God, why are you doing this to me? That'll happen. It'll happen if you allow your heart to go in that direction. And we will start accusing him of being partial towards others and not towards us. And so he says, man, love one another fervently. And that means basically go out of your way to love with purpose and intent, your brothers and your sisters. Now, think about this. Why would Peter stress that in this letter? You know why? I think it's because Peter had to learn that lesson himself. Peter had to live that lesson, and now it's, it's part of his life. It's part of his, it's part of his DNA now, and that's what he's communicating. Why? Because back in the Gospels, in John 21, and you guys remember the story, you know, Peter had denied Christ and, uh, three times, and then, and then he wept bitterly, and then, and then Jesus, you know, he was crucified, and then he rose again from the dead. And then Peter came, or Jesus came back to Peter there in the lakeshore, the Lake Sea of Galilee, and the Lord restored Peter. And in the end of that 
that uh, episode, when that occurred, in John 21, verse 18, Jesus speaking to Peter, he says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. And Peter, just like me, just like you probably, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who had also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, uh, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? What about this guy? How come I'm going through this? What about him? What's, his, what's going to be his trials that he goes through? And Jesus said to him, if, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so I think that just, just, just sunk in with Peter. And so Peter is telling these believers, hey, you're going to go through various trials. You're going to go through different stuff. Don't start comparing yourselves to others. Don't start looking and, and judging yourself according to someone else's life. You follow me. God is a heavenly Father, and He's got a heavenly plan, a good plan. It's a good plan for each one of us, but it's going to be different for each one of us because we are different, and God has a unique purpose for each one of our lives. And so it's dangerous for us to start looking at others and going, why am I going through this and not them? You know, you think about the persecuted church, and I think about this all the time. I'm like, Lord, why am I blessed to be in a country where I'm not persecuted for my faith? And we have people like this that are literally dying because they say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. And I don't have to go through that here. Why? You know, is it because I'm special? Am I better or something? It's No, not at all. And if I was in that condition over there, maybe the temptation would be, why are the Americans, why are the people in the U.S. not like that, you know? That book, there's a book on the back shelf. If you haven't grabbed one, there should be a few more copies. Please take it. I forgot the title of it, but it's a, it's a book about Korean, North Korean believers in North Korea. And if you don't have a book, it's free. Just take one. We'd like to see them all go. But in that book, you know, we, North Korea is the most oppressive, the most idolatrous nation on the face of the planet, the hardest place for a believer to live. And you would think that they'd be kind of resentful of us who have all these... You know what the, the, what they say in that book? Is that they pray for you and I. They pray for our faith because they understand that you know when you have it easy, it's easy to not think about the Lord. It's easy to become complacent in your walk. And that's a danger for us here to become complacent. They actually pray for us. So it's dangerous for us to look at others and compare ourselves against others. God has a unique plan for each of us. And he has a unique purpose, and that purpose is good, and it's for his glory. And so for you and I, man, rejoice with those who rejoice. Someone gets a new car, praise the Lord. I'm glad you got a new car. You know, if someone has just gets all the brakes in their job or, you know, just things are going great, rejoice with those and weep with those who weep. Verse 23 says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. 
I got this from a website. In the year 2000, consumers in the United States spent $563 million on self-help books. And maybe you were one of those who bought one of those self-help books. You know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, or whatever that thing is. Or, you know, seven highly effective habits of seven effective people. You know, I see. obviously I don't have those books, but... Those books, they're so popular. And if you were to go uh, when they came out and buy them in a bookstore, what, 1995 or 20 bucks, whatever, today you could probably go to a garage sale. You could probably go to a garage sale this afternoon and find some of those same books that 10, 15 years ago sold for 20 bucks for a quarter. You could probably pick them up for a quarter. Maybe it's like maybe in a free box, you know, all these, all these self-help books. Why do they all of a sudden lose their value? Why do they also lose their relevance? Well, because, usually because their theories fade or they're outdated or because people find out, hey, this isn't really working. It's a nice theory. The person made a lot of money, but it doesn't really help me. It doesn't help my life. You know, Jesus said in Mark thirteen thirty one, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And... There have been many people throughout history who have tried intensely to destroy God's Word. Uh, In 175 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a king of Syria, he ordered the Jews on pain of death to destroy their scriptures and to worship the Greek gods. But that was a time when this guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus, he saved the scriptures and he led a revolt. And, of course, there was... a uh, won independence for the Jews from that day, and they, you know, that's where the Hanukkah comes from. They, they celebrate that as part of that. That was uh, someone who tried to destroy God's word very early in the early centuries. Then later on, and I think it was around the 300 AD, the Roman Emperor Diocletian he ordered to have Christianity outlawed, all its leaders killed, and all the Bibles burned. And you know what? The very next emperor was Constantine, about 50 years later, and he legalized Christianity, and he paid for 50 new handwritten copies of the Bible to be printed. And it's, you could go down through the years of people that have tried to destroy God's Word or people that have tried to written it off. It is still here today. And it amazes me. You have 66 books written by 40 different authors, written over three different continents, and uh, over a period of probably about 1,600 years, and there's one message in that Bible. It's cohesive. The thing that, you know, I, it just amazes me, and, and some people wonder, well, you know, what's so special about God's Word? Well, you go through prophecy, and there's a lot of prophecy in the Scriptures. Of those prophecies that are fulfilled already, uh, 100% of them have been fulfilled literally. Because God knows the end of from the beginning, and God says, this is what's going to happen, and this is exactly what happens. But more importantly, the Word of God is living. And there's no other scriptures can, that can make this claim. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now there are people that say, "Well, God's word's outdated." You know, doesn't. There are people that will say that today. But when you look at God's word, it deals accurately with the human condition 
regardless of the year you live in, regardless of the culture that you're in, regardless of the language that you speak or when you were born or whatever. It deals accurately with man's heart because it's written by God. It's inspired by God and written uh, who knows you and I. And he knows the heart of mankind. And so we have a written word, a living word of God that deals accurately with the condition of the human. And we also have the sure word of God, the sure word of God's prophecy. And so you and I, man, we've been born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible, he says, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. You know, we were born once of corruptible seed, right? We were born from our parents. Eventually we die. I mean, we're, we're, our bodies are giving out. We're, we're drawing closer towards death. Um, that's corruptible seed. But if you've been born again this morning, you've been born of incorruptible seed. And that's that Word of God, that living Word of God. It's implanted in your and my heart. You know, you, you hear the Word, you hear the Gospel, you believe it, you put your trust in it, it becomes a part of your life. You're born again of incorruptible seed, the Word of God. And so for you and I, the encouragement this morning is just to dig into the Word of God, study it, understand the will of the Lord for your life today and, and trust him lean on his promises um, that's how you and I are going to make it through this life I know I was talking to Dirk he, um, Pastor Dirk who spoke last week um, I knew he was going to teach on in Lamentations uh, chapter 3 because he, he asked me about that when I asked him if he would cover for me he and I went out to uh, uh, lunch yesterday, and and we were just we were just sharing, visiting, and stuff. And and I know what he said to you, and I, and he and I are in full agreement, is that there's persecution coming to this to the U.S. soil. It's coming. I mean, we can see it. We're, Christians, we're starting to get marginalized. That's just the beginning. You know, you look at pre World War uh, Germany, uh, pre World War II Germany before the Holocaust. The Jews, they were marginalized. We're seeing the beginnings of that. It went from there to full-out hatred and persecution, and it's coming. It's coming to this place. And so you and I, man, we need to be rooted and grounded in God's, not in our iPads, but in God's Word. <laughs> Buy an iPad, you know. No, I'm not saying Rooted and grounded in God's Word. There we go. <laughs> Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.